Hello, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Coast St. Luke Public Library, and this week, the Criterion Collection released the 2019 Martin Scorsese movie, The Irishman, on both DVD and Blu-ray. The DVD of The Irishman is something that you can reserve from the library, but it is also available to watch on Netflix, if you are a subscriber. Next month, I will be starting a new program on Zoom called Movie Time, where I invite you to join me to discuss a new movie each week. The first of these movies that I will be discussing on January 5th with you, I hope, is The Irishman. But today, I will also be talking about the film, so if you haven't seen it yet, you may wish to skip this segment of lockdown viewing and first watch the movie on Netflix, because I will be revealing a lot of plot spoilers. Not that that's really important to the viewing of this great movie, but it is important to know that everything I do here is also archived for future listening on the city's SoundCloud page, where you can find in the next few days this episode of Lockdown Viewing, as well as everything else that I have recorded for the Co St. Luke telephone broadcast system. The filmmaker behind The Irishman, the now 78-year-old Martin Scorsese, grew up in the Italian-American neighborhoods on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where as a sickly boy with dreams of becoming a priest, he first observed the local organized crime figures and the power that they yielded, with apparently little effort. Hollywood, throughout its history, from James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, and John Garfield, in the Warner Brothers movies of the 1930s and the 1940s, to the Godfather films of the 1970s, and even HBO's The Sopranos of the 1990s and early 2000s. They have mostly glamorized the gangster figure. Scorsese himself would be intimately familiar with these iconic works, and to some extent, he has done that too in his own iconic gangster movies. Glamorized them, I mean. If only to show us some of the attraction of that life. But it must be said, there is not much glamour in The Irishman. Rather, what we have in this nearly three-and-a-half-hour movie is, in the words of film critic Jeffrey O'Brien, a, and I quote here, landscape of the terminally ordinary, end quote. It is this de-glamorized reality of the gangster's life, or as near to it as we are likely to get in the movies, that I find especially interesting and most effective. As another film critic, Farron Smith Neem has pointed out, while the allure of that life is still somewhat present in The Irishman, what this film mostly observes is something not imagined by earlier gangster films, including Scorsese's own, and that is gangsters getting old and reaching a stage of life that they little prepared for and perhaps never even expected to see. And this elegiac quality is, I think, the principal reason that some have been disappointed by the Irishman. It's just not as exciting <laughs> as many gangster films of old. It's a reflective film, a thoughtful film, a film with thinking about the entire genre of gangster movies that have come before it. For example, with the characters of Scorsese's 1990 gangster film Goodfellas, old age is barely even a rumor. 
like tales of suburbs where no one gets whacked, in the words of O'Brien. When Henry Hill, played by the then-handsome 30-something Ray Liotta in that film, gets out after his prison stint, he's still a young man, a young man possessed of a sense that things will work out because, well, there's still lots of time, right? The middle-aged mob boss he's worked for, Polly, played in the film by Paul Servino, has no such sunny low outlook, however. He sees what the future can all too easily hold for their kind, dying an old man in prison. And almost 30 years later, the tracking shot that opens The Irishman plays like Polly's warning come to life. Except it's not prison. It's a nursing home. To describe it, the camera moves through a door and begins its measured journey down a corridor past nurses stations and waiting rooms and into a large communal dining room area where a man in a wheelchair, wheelchair is revealed and framed suggestively against the bars of a railing. Except he's not in prison. It's a nursing home. But as things turn out, that's not entirely an important distinction to this man, the elderly Frank Sheeran. A former hitman and union official, and also the title character of the Irishman. He's still confined, and not just by age or the nursing home in which he now finds himself, but more importantly as things will turn out, by the choices that he's made and the things that he's done with his life, which have alienated, it, alienated him from his family and brought about an overwhelming sense of guilt. The real-life Frank Sheeran, as played here in the movie by Robert De Niro, died in 2003. He was a high-ranking official in the Teamsters, a powerful American labor union. And he also had links to the Mafia. In fact, Sharon was a leading figure in the corruption of the Teamsters by the Mafia. In 1980, he was convicted of labor racketeering and sentenced to 32 years in prison, of which he served 13 years. Shortly before his death, he made several sensational claims, as told to the crime writer and former prosecutor Charles Brandt, for Brandt's narrative nonfiction book, I Heard You Paint Houses, which came out in 2004, about Sheeran having played a consequential role in mob history, including pulling the trigger in two especially notorious unsolved crimes. The killing of Mafia figure Joey Gallo in 1972, and more importantly, the disappearance and presumed murder of former Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa in 1975. Hoffa was, I'm sure you'll remember, a very important figure in American public life in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, really right up until his death. Now, the truthful, and it was headline news in 1975. I remember, I was quite young, but I remember um, it, uh, his disappearance because nobody knew what happened to him. And for weeks, if not months afterwards, there was much speculation in the media about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Where's Jimmy Hoffa? People would ask. Now, the truthfulness of such claims as made by Sheeran in that book um, by Charles Brandt have been disputed. Nevertheless, the book here with 
the Scorsese movie, The Irishman, it does provide the fictional basis for the film. Because whereas the book was nonfiction, uh, the movie, The Irishman, is um, a story-based movie. Uh, in other words, it proceeds as if you were reading fiction or watching fiction. And whether those claims made in the book um, by Sharon are true or not, I don't think that was of great interest to Martin Scorsese, the filmmaker. Rather, I think it merely provides the story, a mob story, upon which to present the harshness of the gangster's world. As Scorsese, this great filmmaker, sees it. And it is that harshness with which the movie, his movie, is most concerned. And also with the customs and manners of that world. And perhaps not so much the precise details about who killed who. It's enough to believe that on whatever level, Frank Sheeran was a killer and a thoroughly unpleasant figure. So while a concern with gangster reality may be especially evident with The Irishman, it still functions like the great gangster movies that precede it, at the level of allegory and myth through which we make extrapolations into our own lives and the greater world beyond them. You know, it's funny, but whereas Martin Scorsese is fixed in the minds of many as the consummate director of gangster movies, among the 25 or so movies that he has directed, only four among them are truly gangster films. Mean Streets from 1973, Goodfellas from 1990, Casino from 1995, and the most recent one, which is The Irishman from 2019. So in effect, he has gone almost 25 years without making a gangster film. Nevertheless, all four of these movies are built on his unique style, his editing, camera work, use of music, and in his own words, what is in and what he leaves out of the frame. All these singular abilities and more, honed over the course of nearly six decades of filmmaking, are on display here in The Irishman. It's a tour de force, a tour de force of filmmaking both in style and in content. But it's also a film that can be viewed as meta-Scorsese, meaning a movie about a terribly flawed, violent, yet compelling character and his associates that is both directly informed by those movies that came before it, and also a kind of meditation upon them as well. And not only those three earlier Scorsese gangster films, but much of the history of the gangster movie genre. But there is something else going on in The Irishman, if that wasn't enough, <laughs> that gives it its truly epic feel, be beyond the running time of almost three and a half hours. And that is that the filmmaker is also incorporating significant aspects of 20th century American history, from World War II to the Bay of Pigs invasion and the loss of Cuba, and from the rise of a powerful labor union, the Teamsters, to the election and subsequent assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it is this particular conceit of the film, I think, a lie, as some would have it, that its mobsters were involved 
in all of these things. Now, as Frank quietly explains at one point, and this is one of the outstanding things about the movie, there aren't a lot of acting histrionics within it. People rarely lose their temper. And what violence there is, is abrupt, shocking, but not sensational. And so as Frank quietly explains at one point, any such criminal conspiracy involving the mob as a truly organized crime, or engaged in a truly organized crime, whether helping out or working against the schemes of the American government, all an individual like Frank Sheeran knows is his part of it. That's the conspiracy. And if he's smart, if anyone involved in the conspiracy is smart, he doesn't want to learn more. He just knows his own part. Uh, and of course, that has some very practical implications. If he's ever brought to trial, he, um, you know, he can only know what he knows, right? Um, and can't be implicated uh, for things that he doesn't know, at least in theory. Now, despite that epic feel, you know, that incorporates much of uh, gangster movie history, in addition to much of American political history from World War II to the end of the 20th century. Despite that, most of the core scenes of The Irishman are, are truly found, are truly to be found in a series of intimate exchanges. And this is what I, this is what I mean when I say that there are new, no, um, there's no over-the-top acting. There, there, none of the histrionics uh, that one might otherwise associate with the genre of gangster films. But rather, here in The Irishman, what we have are mostly, well, many one-on-one -on -one encounters, small transactions, soundings out, a constant redefining and reassertion of permissions and limits between the principal real-life characters of The Irishman of which there are three. The Mafia boss, Russell Buffalino, is played by Joe Pesci. The Teamsters Union president, Jimmy Hoffa, is played by Al Pacino. And most importantly, the man who straddles both worlds, Frank Sheeran, the Irishman, is played by Robert De Niro. In their first intimate conversation, De Niro's Sheeran tells Pesci's Buffalino a story about executing German prisoners, in effect admitting to a war crime during the noble endeavor of that so-called good war of World War II. Sheeran would have been a very young man during World War II. But in this scene between him and Buffalino, this confessional moment, we watch an understanding and trust blossom between the two. And of course, it is important that these two men are being played by Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. Joe Pesci, who had been in both God, Goodfellas and Casino, and Robert De Niro, who was in all three of those earlier Scorsese gangster films, as well as playing iconically Vito Corleone in Godfather Part II, in addition to a number of other gangster films, 
That's important, and that's what I mean by the meta level of filmmaking. We're, we're watching what's happening on one level, but we're also relating to it on another, and that's the history of gangster movies. So we particularly sense this, this, this meta level, but we, we also understand what's being said in this intimate conversation, and that is that these two men have a mutual understanding that violence outside their conversation, which, as I said, is very quiet, very almost intimate, really, that, that violence and other forms of illegal behavior, that's, as they would see it, something that's merely a part of the job. Never an end in itself, just a form of business. And so they would discuss it as part of a criminal conspiracy, like they would discuss any other form of business. But how quiet this and other conversations are in The Irishman, however quiet they are, we, we never lose awareness that these are men locked in power relationships founded on both violence and the threat of violence. And even though they are not committing it in these scenes, they are talking about it very quietly, <laughs> almost as if they were bookkeepers and not gangsters. And a similar dynamic, a similar conversation, or similar conversations, in fact, at an intimate level, occur between De Niro's Frank Sheeran and Al Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa who, of course, is another highly prominent actor with an iconic array of gangster performances behind him. Not that Hoffa ever thought of himself as a gangster, by the way, but um, most importantly, of course, for Pacino, in relation to those iconic gangster portrayals, most importantly is his fictional character of Michael Corleone, in the Godfather films. He's done other gangster films, of course, many others, but certainly Michael Corleone is the most important of those and arguably the most single most important gangster fi figure in the history of gangster movies. But whereas Pacino's Michael character of those earlier Godfather films was icily cool in his demeanor, his Hoffa figure in The Irishman is unlike both Sharon and Buffalino, all heat and emotion, but with a capacity for genuine fondness and a public charisma that are both almost entirely absent in these two other men, just as they were absent with the equally sociopathic Michael Corleone of the Godfather films. Now, if you will recall, and I'm, I, I'm sure you've seen them many times, the, the Godfather itself ends with a sense of consolidation of power, right? Um, Pacino's Michael is triumphant. He has won, and his supplicants stand before him in acknowledgement of that fact. The Corleone family, with Michael as its head, it has defeated, by the end of The Godfather, all of its nemeses and... and he especially, the family in general, but he now rules over the New York mob world, like the Medicis did similarly in Renaissance Florence. 
And that's kind of what I mean by glamorizing gangsterdom. It's a very glamorous portrayal of the mob in The Godfather. It's a, it's a kind of royalty of mobdom, the Corleones. But where it's... Uh, where the Godfather's sequel, The Godfather Part Two, it, 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 it ends with a similar sense of power consolidation after great violence is committed, this time in Las Vegas and beyond. Pacino's Michael character, the head of the Corleone crime family, is by the end of The Godfather Part Two, an entirely isolated figure personally just as is De Niro's Frank Sheeran at the end of The Irishman. And I'm sure the connection was entirely intended by Martin Scorsese, even if he didn't make The Godfather films. They were made by Francis Ford Coppola, of course. But the distinction I wish to make between the Corleone character at the end of The Godfather films, the part one and part two, and that of De Niro's Frank Sheeran at the end of The Irishman is that Frank is entirely without any of Michael Corleone's power or riches or Lake Tahoe, ta, ta, Lake Tahoe retreat. Um, he's in a nursing home. He's, like Corleone, alienated from his family. Now, whether in the Godfather films or The Irishman or hundreds of lesser gangster films for that matter, the self-justification of those characters engaged in the mobster life is that all they were ever doing was protecting their family. And not their crime family, I mean their biological family, right? It's the justification of many movie mobsters. But yet, it's, it's, it's always the families that suffer, whether in the movies or in real life. Remember that in the original Godfather film, Pacino's Michael, the college graduate, only enters the family business, the crime business, in order to protect his father and, by extension, the family itself from harm. This is why we confuse the two terms, or why they are deliberately confused in the movies and outside of the movies. The crime family and the family, those are two virtually interchangeable terms, and whether we mean the biological family, the, the family by marriage, or the family by crime, those are two things that are not always easily disentangled. And that's certainly true in The Irishman, because the Frank Sharon character, whether consciously or not, has chosen as his primary loyalty, his crime family, and not his biological family, or his family by marriage. But by the end of the second Godfather film, I, I just want to stress this, if I haven't <laughs> stressed it enough, Michael Corleone, too, has alienated himself entirely from his true family, not his crime family even ordering the execution of his hapless brother, Fredo, in order, he thinks, in his own chillingly sociopathic mind, to protect it. But of course, what he's really doing is protecting his criminal interests. 
he's totally gotten them confused. Whereas back in the first film, Michael had been someone who set out to protect his real family, not his crime family by extension, though he was not involved with those activities at the beginning of the first film. That's the tragic irony of Michael Corleone in the Godfather films. He sets out to protect the family, not the crime family, remember, his real family, but ends up destroying it. A solitary figure, now separated from his wife Kate, and left alone entirely in his thoughts at the end of the second film. And this is something that the Irishman reflects upon directly. It's almost a kind of meditation upon the Michael Corleone character of those two films. The Irishman is about the dissolution of the family and individual isolation just like the Godfather films. But it's even more pessimistic than them. I mean, where Michael was at least a man still in middle age by the end of part two, um, and, you know, still surrounded by the trappings of wealth, power, and influence, De Niro's Frank Sheeran of The Irishman ends up with none of those things. And all of it, his fate, his guilt, his isolation from his real family, the one the one he too claims to have been protecting. In a moment of justification with one of his daughters, he attempts to say that. But it is clearly untrue. And his daughter is just left aghast as if to say, oh, daddy, what are you saying? And all of that, all of that by De Niro in The Irishman is conveyed beautifully Beautifully. Not through any on-screen histrionics, remember, but in De Niro's unique gifts as an actor. A flourish here, a gesture there, a stammer or a slight shift of vocal tone, or even that of silent, physical immobility. What De Niro, in his performance as Frank, conveys in The Irishman is that of a fully imagined being, alone in a world that no longer exists by the end of the film. Almost all of his, his confreres, his, his, his gangster colleagues, they're all dead. They've all died. He's outlasted almost all of them. And yet, he has thought, that, again, consciously or unconsciously, that that was his true loyalty, his crime family. And it is his true family, his, the family of his daughters who still are alive, but who are, remain alienated from him. That is Frank's tragedy. But I have to say the acting all the way down the line in uh, The Irishman is, is really quite superb. Um, you know, from De Niro to, to Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, who are, who are both quite wonderful too. All, but also, you know, in the distinct inflections provided by those in even the smallest roles. One thing else I'd like to emphasize about The Irishman, and that is its world, like that of the Godfather films and all gangster films, really, is very much a man's world, of course. But it is also one in which women are the excuse for the criminal behavior of those men to protect the family. 
in the Irishman. That's the lie, the lie that Sheeran's eldest daughter, Peggy, gives an almost silent witness to. She's like the chorus of a Greek tragedy, so important to the film, and in many ways as important as the triad of De Niro, Pesci, and Pacino. She doesn't have as many scenes, but she's the moral center of the Irishman. Played as a child by Lucy Galena and as an adult by Anna Paquin, it is Peggy Sheeran's near-wordless presence that stands in a kind of solitary resistance to everything that happens around her. And in her name, remember. As a child, after watching her father crush the hand of a grocery store worker who perhaps accidentally had shoved her, she withdraws into a sullen darkness and unspoken knowledge of who her father truly is. But not just her father. On a couple of occasions, she recoils from the smiling, ingratiating Pesci, who's Russell character, though never raising his voice throughout the entire film, reacts in the words of film critic Jeffrey O'Brien, like some fairy tale ogre quietly upset by a child's refusal to acknowledge his power, quote unquote. On the other hand, she does, Peggy that is, both as a child and later on as a grown-up, respond warmly to Pacino's Hoffa character's genuine, unthreatening affection. In fact, you might say that the bond between them, not long before his death, and uh, a bond sealed really by a dance um, together at her father. Frank's big occasion testimonial dinner is perhaps the, the, the only evidence of a kind of spontaneous human connection in the whole film. And by that, I mean a connection not based on power relationships. Just affection. Nothing more, nothing less. Later in the aftermath of Hoffa's killing, Peggy stares down her father, Frank, and stops talking to him forever once she realizes, without ever directly confronting him about it or even articulating her awareness, that it was her father who has killed Hoffa. How we know that? She just knows her father. She can tell. One day, uh, the mother and the sisters are watching events unfold on television, uh, a news report on the Hoppe disappearance when Frank enters the room. And by the end of that scene, she has understood, wordlessly, almost, what her father has done. And will apparently never speak to him again. Both Lucy Galena and uh, Anna Paquin, in this shared role as Peggy, you know, both as child and as adult, they, they exercise a kind of haunting power. The moral center of the film, as I said, that goes far beyond the amount of time each spends on screen. The power of refusal, the silent power of refusal for which Frank has never had the slightest capacity himself. We are led to believe that a hard shell 
acquired early on in life is what protects him from any emotional connection to his acts of killing. Even when he finally comes to a seemingly unresolvable conflict of loyalties, as Russell Buffalino and his mob colleagues determine that Hoffa must be killed, Frank makes no choice, but merely accedes to, uh, you know, out of necessity, to those who are more dominant in that power relationship. The mob, not Hoffa. And so he goes along. He kills, really, and it's, it, it's, 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 it's almost out of habit, you know, a kind of unconscious doing, really. It's, 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 it's really quite a sad thing. It's an almost passive act, just following unspoken orders. The closest, the closest that Frank Sharon ever comes to, to such a self-awareness is near the end of the film when he, when he seeks absolution from both his daughters, those who are still talking to him, and also a priest. Um, especially in a moment in which he says about himself um, in the presence of that priest, um, quite uncomprehendingly uh, to that priest, he, he says about himself, although the priest would know it, and I quote here, he says, what kind of man makes a phone call like that? I mean, if we didn't know any better, if we hadn't seen everything that had uh, preceded it, we really wouldn't even know he was talking about himself. But he is, of course. And he's referring to a particular sense of guilt about a single phone conversation that he has made. And that phone conversation was his stammering, barely audible call to Jimmy Hoffa's wife, Joe made days after the killing in which he conveyed pure deception through a string of lies and a tone simulating deep concern for his well-being, Hoffa's, and hers, knowing all the time not only that he was dead, but that he had killed him. Can you imagine? And that's the awareness that Frank only comes to in the very late moments of his life when he says, what kind of man makes a phone call like that? You know, if I have any kind of a problem with The Irishman as a movie, it's at the technical level. And the choice by Martin Scorsese to use De Niro especially, but all three of the principal actors, Pesci and Pacino included, to play younger versions of themselves. At least the youngest versions of themselves. Instead of casting entirely different and genuinely much younger actors to do so, as he did with the Peggy character. Now, no doubt one reason he did so is because of the iconic status of those three actors and their particular association with the gangster genre. But no amount of de-aging technology and no amount of acting talent, but especially in the de-aging technology famously used in the making of The Irishman, can hide the fact that these three same character actors are all in their late 70s when they made the movie. Even while the action of the film stretches over half a century, so you can see where the problem lies. But uh, the film has used this uh, de-aging technology, so-called, to uh, obscure the fact, in, in effect attempting to make the actors look uh, like much younger versions of themselves through computer-generated uh, effects. But 
Having said that, on another level, the distortions and sometimes odd disparity between the apparent ages of the faces and bodies, it, it, cre they, it creates a kind of strange mask-like quality that I think, maybe in part deliberately, ensures that we in watching The Irishman can never find anything truly heroic or romantic in the actions of these men. And that we never lose sight that they are gangsters, or at least gangsters of a kind in the case of Hoffa, even if played by movie stars, however old they might be. It's almost as if, despite their otherwise outward normality, we can see in the actions of Sheeran, Buffalino, and Hoffa, both as younger and middle-aged men, a kind of foreshadowing of the inevitable outcome that those actions will lead them to later in life. In this way, the Irishman operates in its own highly distinct manner, in the relentless, inevitable working out of fate, both for the characters on screen, but by extension, also for those of us watching at home. And I say that because whatever else they may be, the characters played by Pesci, Pacino, and De Niro are all flesh and blood human beings. And ultimately, their fate is also our own. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this commentary on the Martin Scorsese movie, The Irishman. I didn't mean to go quite this long, but, but there you are. I hope you've uh, stuck it out. And that you will join me in one month's time on Zoom for a uh, library discussion about the film, um, meaning me and you, I hope, um, as uh, members of the library. Um, uh, um, uh, remember, The Irishman is available to watch on Netflix. I hope you're a subscriber. Uh, it's also available as a DVD that you can reserve from the library, although, of course, I can guarantee that you will get the DVD before the uh, discussion on Zoom on January 5th. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. Please also join me next week. Sorry for that here on the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcast Service. For my look into the history, background, and significance, I think you'll find this interesting, of the classic Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codestluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now.